Amen. You may be seated. Children, at this time, you are invited to head on down to kids' worship and to worship Jesus and learn about him downstairs. And as they go, why don't we uh, open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 10 as we can continue our study through this gospel. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31 of Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, 17 through 31. Let me read for us. Uh, Mark writes, and he says, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Father, as we look at these words, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our convictor and encourager. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. There are certain encounters that Jesus had with individuals in his lifetime and in his ministry that are so significant for us that they are recorded multiple times in the gospel records. Uh, God, in his wisdom, knows that oftentimes we can see ourselves better and learn more about ourselves by getting an inside look into the life of another. And the encounter that Jesus had with this man that we're reading about this morning, God apparently thinks is so significant and so relevant to us and our own self-understanding that the Holy Spirit ensured that it's not just recorded once in the Bible for us, not even twice, but three times. Uh, we can read about this man in Matthew's gospel, 
in Luke's gospel and, of course, here in Mark's gospel that we're looking at this morning. You think about that. If you read your Bible through in a year, which I hope you do, you are being exposed to this man at least three times. There is something that God wants us to learn from this man and the encounter that Jesus had with him. What does he want us to learn? Well, first, we have to look at who this man actually was. Who was this man that Jesus encountered? He has come to be known as the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler. Now, if all we had to go off of was Mark's account, we wouldn't know why he is called the rich young ruler, because out of the three gospels that talk to him, talk about him, Mark gives us the least amount of information. So we have to do a little legwork from the other accounts as well to put the picture together of who this man was. Who was the rich young ruler? First of all, the Bible tells us he was a young man. Uh, Matthew, when he writes about this man, uh, uses the Greek word that was designated for men roughly in their 30s. He was probably about my age, probably no later than his mid-30s. Uh, he was in the prime years of his life, a lot of potential in, uh, in his season of life. He was a young man, and he was also a morally exemplary man. We're going to see in verse 19 and 20 that he tells Jesus that he had kept the commandments of God throughout his lifetime. He was a man of high integrity, a man who was above reproach, a man who had serious moral fortitude. He's the kind of man who, if you throw an accusation at him, it just wouldn't stick. He's what we would say was a good guy, a decent guy. He was a young man, he was a morally exemplary man, and he was religiously devout. If we would read in Luke's gospel, we would find that he was a ruler. Now, that title ruler was used to signify rulers within the Jewish synagogue. And those rulers functioned sort of like elders function in a church. They were known as the leading men, men of great uh, spiritual wisdom, spiritual guidance. He would have been respected among the Jewish community and seen as someone that they could learn from. He was a young man. He was morally exemplary. He was religiously devout and he was financially blessed. Uh, we find in verse 22 of our passage that he had great possessions. Uh, when Luke writes about him, he says that he was, quotes, extremely rich. So he was in the top percentage of wealth in his day. And apparently he'd come by his money honestly because he told Jesus that he had never defrauded anyone and he'd never stolen anything. So he came by his money uh, by good, honest, hard work. Now, this is extremely important note to keep tucked away in the back of our minds to help us understand this passage. Because the Jewish mindset of Jesus' day was that wealth was essentially a sign of God's saving grace upon an individual. It was seen essentially as God giving a, a big thumbs up, a, a high five, uh, a good moral life. You were one of God's favorites if you were a rich man because obviously God's favor was resting upon you. So you boil it all down. Here's a young man full of potential, a good guy. He's a leader among his religious community and he's filthy rich. Obviously the blessing of God resting upon him. You boil it all down, he's the ideal guy. 
I remember in high school, um, every year, the, the senior class girls had an opportunity to vote for the yearbook on which boy uh, would win the most likely to bring home to mom and dad award. Uh, somehow I didn't receive that award when I was a senior. Um, but this man would have won that award. He was the kind of man that we'd hope that our sons would grow up to be. The sort of guy that we'd hope that our daughters would bring home someday. But all that glitters is not gold. For all of his accomplishments, for all of his squeaky clean record, he was also misguided. He was a misguided man. As this story begins, this, uh, he comes to Jesus. If you take a look in verse 17, take a look at verse 17. He comes to Jesus with a question. He runs up to him, he kneels before him, and he asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All these great things that he's worked for, all these great achievements that he's, uh, that he's uh, been able to accumulate, and now he's going to work for the ultimate prize. He's going for the gold star. He wants to work his way up to eternal life. Well, that's a good concern that he has, but it's the wrong question. Notice what he asked Jesus. What must I do? to inherit eternal life. Matthew, when he records what question he asked Jesus, he said that he asked him, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man had a misguided notion that all of us, believer and non-believer, are tempted to struggle with. And that is that we try to earn God's favor and try to earn our own salvation. And Jesus' response to him this morning is going to teach us a fundamental truth, the fundamental truth that eternal life cannot be gained by our goodness, but must be given by God's grace. Eternal life cannot be gained by our goodness, but must be given by God's grace. Now, all of that was introduction. Aren't you happy? Uh, here we go. Let's look at the text. First of all, we see from this example that, first of all, eternal life cannot be gained by our goodness. Jesus, in responding to this man's question, responds in a strange way that may actually confuse us a little bit. Take a look at verse 18. Look at how he answers this man. He's asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why is Jesus responding in this strange way to this guy's question? Well, first of all, I think Jesus is honing in on the fact that as he talks to him, he is speaking to God incarnate. But I think what Jesus is doing is beginning to pry into this man's heart and challenge this man's assumption about people's perceived goodness. In fact, he's challenging this man's own perception of his own goodness. And what does he say to him in verse 19? He gives him sort of a, a facetious reply. You know the commandments, Jesus says. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In other words, you're a ruler of the synagogue. You know the scriptures well. You know the, the commandments. If you want to earn eternal life, keep the commandments perfect. Be perfect if you want to earn 
eternal life. Now, what should the man's reply be? Not probably what his reply was. Uh, Take a look at verse 20. How does he respond to Jesus here? He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, if you're like me, you read that and your temptation was right off the bat to want to say to the guy, hey, buddy, get off your high horse. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's imagine that by some great moral fortitude, he has been able to keep the commandments of God outwardly. Has he been able to keep the commandments of God inwardly? He apparently had never heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where we are taught that true obedience to God is not just a matter of our outward actions, our outward performance, but also a matter of our inward motivation, what our heart is doing. This man says that he's never murdered anyone. That may be true. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that we're guilty of murder if we harbor anger in our heart towards someone. Has this man ever been angry? Uh, This man says that he has never committed adultery. That may be true. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that just by looking lustfully at someone else, we have committed adultery in our hearts. Has this man never once looked lustfully at another woman? For all of his confidence, this man is clearly misguided. He's not as good as he thinks he is. And we see from his example, eternal life cannot be gained by our goodness because we are not as good as we think. All of us seen through his example, all of us struggle with proud inclinations. We are prone to to see how we're doing in God's eyes simply by our outward life, what we do and the things that we stay away from. And as long as we're living a basically good life outwardly, we think we're doing pretty well. But if we'd go back to chapter 7 of Mark, do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said it's not a matter of our outward life. Our problem before God is our inward life. We need to view ourselves from the inside out, not the outside in. Jesus says, from the heart come all these evil things. Paul, in writing Romans, when he wrote Romans 3, 10 through 12, quoting the Old Testament, he reminded us of the fundamental truth. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. So how is Jesus going to reply to this man's uh, bold statement that he's kept the commandments, uh, a statement of ignorance, maybe even of arrogance? Take a look at verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus looks at the man, and as he looks at him, he loves him. Despite his misguidedness, despite his pride, His grace and his mercy reaches out to the man. And what will his love compel Jesus to do for him? It compels him to help the man see himself as he really is. We go to the doctor sometimes when we're not feeling well. Maybe we're having an ache and a pain. And the doctor sometimes pokes around a little bit and he says, how does it feel when I I do this? How does it feel when I do that? Uh, Does it hurt when I do this? Jesus, like a good spiritual doctor, is going to poke this man in the heart and essentially ask, how does it feel when I poke right here? 
Because for all the man had, he lacked one essential thing. What was that thing? Look at verse 21. Jesus says to the man, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. How did the man respond? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This man who no obstacle was too great for him, nothing he couldn't work for, nothing he couldn't overcome, had finally met his match. Jesus put his finger on it. The one thing that he was not able to overcome was his own idolatrous heart. For all the commandments he kept, he missed number one of the Ten Commandments. No other God before me. His trust was in his works and his love was in his wallet. And notice, how did the man approach Jesus? In verse 17, we're told he, he ran to Jesus in earnest, excited about figuring out, I'm going to figure out this thing called eternal life. Verse 22, how does he leave? Slinking away, sorrowful, because he couldn't bring himself to give up the very thing that he loved most, his good track record and his idol. All of us struggle with this. We have proud inclinations and we have prized idols. For him it was his wealth, for us it may be other things, things that take the place of God in our affections, in our hearts, in our minds. Eternal life cannot be gained by our own goodness. We're not as good as we think we are. Well, Jesus shifts his attention then to his disciples. He shifts it uh, away from this man as he walks away and he talks to his disciples in verse 22. And he tells his disciples in verse 22, oh, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He goes on in verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 25, sort of making a funny picture, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know how many humps a camel has. Is it one or two? However many, things too big to go through. I mean, it's a funny picture. Just pushing it. That thing's never going to go through the eye of the needle. And that is Jesus' point, how difficult it is. And the disciples, how do they react to Jesus' words here? Verse 24, it says the disciples were amazed. In verse 26, it says they were exceedingly astonished. Why so amazed? Why so astonished? Well, remember the Jewish mindset. They had equated God's material blessings with the blessings of salvation. They had confused the two so that wealth equaled God's saving grace resting on a person's life. And Jesus is correcting their notion and saying these very material things that you think are a great stamp of God's favor and saving grace may actually be the very thing that keeps you from being able to receive God's saving grace. It's back to what we heard from Charlie last week. That's why I had him preach on it. That very difficult text in 1 Timothy 6. That our wealth can be such an obstacle to actually having to depend on God alone. 
for salvation? Where is our dependence? Where is our hope? So how shocking this must have been for the disciples. Here was an all-star Jewish man, young man, morally upright, kind of guy you would want to bring home to your parents, a man who was a leader among their Jewish community, a man who seemingly had God's great favor resting upon him by all the wealth that he had given him, and yet he cannot be saved. So what did they ask him? In verse 26, in their astonishment, they ask him the question, if this guy can't be saved, who can? And Jesus shifts from the language of difficulty to impossibility. Take a look at verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. No man, no woman can save himself. Eternal life cannot be gained by our own goodness because we are not as good as we think we are. Our greatest track record is but filthy rags and our hearts do not love God as they should. So then, if eternal life cannot be gained by our goodness, how can it be gained? He goes on, eternal life must be given by God's grace and by his grace alone. Take a look at the good news that Jesus shares in verse 27. Verse 27, he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Not by our own goodness, not by our own good works, but by God's grace alone coming completely dependent on his grace in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I was reading, cramming my, my Bible reading plan in between the services, which you're not actually supposed to do, but I did it, so I, I confess my sin to you this morning. But um, uh, where was I? I, was, I can't even remember where I was. Uh, Psalm 52. Psalm 52, David's writing, and, and he says, See the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches. But I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I thank you because you have done it. I read that and I thought, here we are with the rich young ruler. I heard a pastor once say very cleverly, he said, you know, you are saved by works. You are saved by works. But it's not your works You are saved by Christ's work on your behalf. Not what we can do to earn God's favor, but what Christ alone has done through grace so that we might have eternal life. Just as we sang, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I have not died, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. This was the great lesson that Paul the Apostle had to learn. In Philippians 3, do you remember it? Where he essentially equated himself much like the rich young ruler. He said, if anyone wants to boast in their their religious goodness and in their good works and in their amazing track record, I can boast in that. I was the all-star man. I was the Jewish man that every Jew wanted to be. And yet, when I came to measure my righteousness up against Christ's righteousness, I threw my righteousness away like garbage. It became worthless to me in comparison to the righteousness of Christ credited to me by faith in him. This is the knife edge of the gospel. This is the 
reason that 1 Corinthians tells us the gospel is an offense to our innate pride. Because our greatest track record that we so desperately want to have recognized will not measure up. It's not good enough. And we must come in on the basis of Christ alone with nothing of our track record feeding into our salvation. Jesus told us in the the last portion of Mark that we looked at that if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, we have to come in like children, helpless, dependent, dependent on God's grace alone. Paul reminds us in Romans 3, 22 through 24 and 28 that there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The gospel is offensive, but it's only offensive to our pride. It's not offensive to the sense of security that we long for, the sense of love that we long for, of peace. Because when we come to place our trust in what Christ has done alone for us, in Christ, we receive the fullness of God's love. And our good works no longer will never be for us a a means of trying to earn God's favor. But in the gospel, our good works cannot make him love us more. And our greatest sins cannot make him love us less because his love for us is founded not on the basis of us, but on the basis of Christ alone. I was thinking about Ralph this morning. Yesterday when Ralph met Jesus, praise God, the amazing track record that Ralph had. Ralph did not have to stand before Jesus and say, Here's my track record. Here's everything I did for you, Jesus. I left it all. I went to Japan. I served for 20 plus years. I made sure that people were evangelized. I made sure that people were discipled. I hope it's enough to get me in. Despite the amazing resume that Ralph had, he came in pleading one thing, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for him and the righteousness credited to his account. He came in on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. Eternal life cannot be gained by our own goodness, but must be given by God's grace. Now, I don't want to dwell on this long, but there there is a question that is raised within the text. There's a sidebar built in. Uh, If if our good works have nothing to do with our salvation, uh, if if, like the rich man, he actually had to, to look away from his good works as his trust, then do our good works matter at all? Now that we've received salvation... Does God just say, well, just do what you want, and and I don't really care about your good works? What do we do with our good works? Does God notice them? I think that's uh, what was in Peter's mind in verse 28. Take a look at verse 28. Uh, Peter says, of course it's going to be Peter who opens his big mouth. Uh, Verse 28, Peter says to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. He didn't. 
But we have. We've left our fishing nets. We've followed you now for a long time. Look at us. We've done it. Now, how does Jesus reply? Jesus affirms Peter and reassures Peter. Take a look at verse 29. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus tells us that what we do for his sake, not that we might earn his favor, but what we do to make him known, what we do out of our gratitude for what he has done for us, no sacrifice we make for him will go unrecognized and unrewarded in heaven. We do good works not so God might show his love to us, but so that we might show our love for him. Good works do not get us into heaven, but the miracle is God is so gracious that our good works will be rewarded in heaven. Why did Ralph live the life that he lived? Why as a young man did he say, we're gonna leave the United States, we're gonna leave everything familiar, we're gonna go over to Japan, we're gonna learn a, a language that we don't know, and we're gonna spend decades raise a family outside of you know, our homeland. And we're gonna stay at this, no matter how little fruit, no matter how much fruit, no matter what trials come, we're gonna stay in this thing. Why did Ralph do that? Not so that he might earn God's favor, but because he wanted his life to be a great big thank you to Jesus. Because Jesus had become everything to him. When we come to understand what Christ has made possible for us in our salvation, it frees us to let go of the things of this world and to make unreasonable sacrifices in the minds of the world because we've come to see that Jesus is worth every sacrifice, that to bear the cross is no loss because glorifying him is the heartbeat of every believer. The rich young ruler came in asking the wrong question. The question is not what must we do to have eternal life. The question is what has Christ already done so that we might have eternal life? Eternal life cannot be gained by our goodness but must be given by God's grace. And here is the call to us this morning. The gospel call from Jesus, the gospel call that Ralph gave his life doing in service to, was that we would lay down our pride, that we would stop trying to earn our salvation by our great works, by our great performance, but rather that we would see the idols within our heart that must be repented of and confessed and turn and in humility fall upon Christ's righteousness alone for our salvation. This morning the call is, come to the cross. Come to the cross alone, without any mixture of your best that you can give God. Fall upon his mercy and grace alone 
for your salvation, for your acceptance. And for those of us who may have been walking with Jesus for decades and yet we, we struggle on a daily basis, does God really love me? Does God really approve of me? Does God really want me? The glory of the gospel is in Christ, your best works will not make him love you more. You have received the fullness of God's love and your biggest sins will never make him love you less because he views you not on the basis of what you have done or not done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for you. In him, you are secure. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this frees us to make amazing sacrifices for his kingdom to say to Jesus, take my life as a living sacrifice. I leave it all so that this saving news that I have received might be received 